get it. But this morning, we're going to work our way through Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there as we look at a really great text where Jesus is uh, doing some incredible things. We've uh, learned that Jesus is in the earlier stages of his ministry. He is uh, has traveled around the country. He has caused uh, quite a ruckus as he's healing people and claiming to be the Messiah and large crowds are following him. Uh, he has called the disciples to himself twice because the first time didn't take, but he finally did a miracle for the fishermen to let them know that they needed to follow him permanently. Uh, he healed a leper and Mark says that when he did it, it created such shock waves throughout the country that mobs were approaching him in such great size that he had to not even go into cities in order to prevent uh, human gridlock. And so he would just kind of teach outside the cities. People would come to him from outside the cities and then he could accommodate the huge masses of people who were following him to both hear his teaching and to get healed. Now, uh, we aren't going to read the text just because it's big and we're a little bit short on time, but I want to show you from Luke 5, 17 through 26, three important truths that every Christian uh, needs to learn and apply to their life in order to bring glory to God. So we'll just kind of read the text as we go. And the first thing we learn from verses 17 through 19 is uh, what it means to be a friend. And so look down at verse 17 and notice what the text says starting in verse 17 he says one day he was teaching and there was some pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of galilee and judea and from jerusalem now just stop there for a minute Uh, luke is really into people and so he focuses in this section of narrative on four groups of people and the first person or a group of people that he focuses on is Jesus. Jesus. Uh, in verse 17, one day he, that is Jesus, was teaching. Mark tells us that he had come back to Capernaum, which was now his new hometown, because when he went to Nazareth, they rejected him. So he set up home in Capernaum. And Mark also tells us he was speaking the word of God to them. And the text continues uh, that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there and they'd come from every village, Luke says, in Galilee, Judea, and from Jerusalem, which means all over the country. Now, this is probably a little bit of hyperbole. Uh, what Luke is just merely saying is this. Uh, the fame of Jesus and his, his deeds and teachings had become so well known that that scribes and Pharisees from all over the country were gathering together to see what was going on. It doesn't mean every single little village, but uh, the bulk of places all over uh, Israel from, you know, Galilee in the north to Judea and Jerusalem in the south were all gathering and all converging upon Jesus's house in Capernaum which is pretty incredible, which is probably Peter's house. We don't know, but he's teaching in some sort of place um, there in Capernaum. There might have been 5,000. There might have been 10,000. There might have been 15,000 people all mashed in to hear one person. And what do you suppose drew them there? Well, they had heard that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. 
that Jesus was able to cast out demons, that Jesus was able to heal all manner of disease and sickness. And they knew he was the one predicted by John the Baptist because John the Baptist said so. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Jewish leaders were probably both concerned that Jesus was a false teacher and was going to lead the people astray as there had been many false messiahs at that time. And they were probably also quite a bit jealous, which we will discover as we go through the text. They were jealous because they were the leaders. They were the experts in the law. They were the teachers. And yet now all the multitudes are going to this carpenter. And so they were a little bit jealous. And so they came with a very critical uh, uh, spirit to figure out um, why there was all this hype about this guy named Jesus. And as we work our way through the text, as we go through Luke specifically, we'll see that these spiritual leaders were really unbelieving and they were angry and they were jealous and they just wanted to do away with Jesus. Remember that Mark tells us that after the healing of the leper, Jesus was causing these huge traffic jams. And so that's what you need to keep in your mind as we think about this text. Jesus has caught the attention of these religious leaders and people from all over the country. They have come to get healed, to hear his teaching. And that is what's happening in the text. Look at the end of verse 17. The text says, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And so people are getting healed. And of course, as each person gets healed, they push their way out through the crowd saying, I'm healed, you know, my bad back or whatever, Um, whatever it is, you know, he fixed my eye, he did whatever. And so people desperate to get healed are crunching forward tighter and tighter in hopes that they might be the next person, that they might hear what Jesus had to say. No one had ever seen anything like this happen in Israel, and it was extremely intriguing. Look at verse 18, and it says, And some men, and stop there, this is the second group mentioned in the text, these some men, which Luke goes on to tell us, were carrying a bed On a bed, a man who was paralyzed. Of course, Luke, being a doctor, is very into sicknesses and things. He uses the passive uh, verb, a participle, paraluo, to tell us that this man had paralysis come upon him, either through a disease or an accident. The adjective of this word is the word paraludicos, the word we get paralytic from. It's almost taken directly across into English. Mark informs us that there were four men carrying this man on some sort of bed or stretcher. And it could have been that they lived locally in Capernaum. Or it could have been they were from another town. But whatever the case may be, carrying somebody on a stretcher is hard work. I don't know if you've ever done this before. But just imagine right now you're on one of the corners, take somebody in this congregation, stick them on a stretcher and carry them over to Costco. That's not very far. These men were carrying this man around on this stretcher intent on getting near Jesus so that their friend could be healed. Luke tells us their motive For carrying the paralyzed man in verses 18 and 19. And they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of him, that is Jesus. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd. Now just stop there. There were so many people there, they couldn't make it through. 
I mean, they had tenacity, they had desire, but there was this huge human gridlock around Jesus. And, you know, one person might with force be able to mash themselves through the crowd, but to carry four guys carrying a man in a stretcher, no way. But you know what? These men loved this man in the stretcher. They loved him. And they weren't going to go, oh, the crowd's too big. Let's carry him back to wherever he came from. Man, they thought, listen, we've carried him this far. We're getting him to Jesus. We're going to get him there. We aren't going to let this little obstacle get in our way. You know, maybe these men were brothers of this man. Maybe they were close friends. Maybe they were just co-workers. And, you know, they've seen this man get hurt in an accident and they knew he couldn't take care of himself. And, you know, he had a wife and a children, children, and here he was paralyzed and was just helpless there. And man, they were driven. They were going to help this guy out. Whatever the case may be, these men love this paralyzed man and they were intent on getting him to Jesus. The middle of verse 19 tells us that what they did since they couldn't squeeze through the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Apparently, Jesus was in a big house. I mean, most houses at that time were, you know, wouldn't accommodate a large crowd. So it's possible that Jesus was in some sort of portico or large covered awning area or whatever, some sort of, you know, large Quonset hut type thing. We don't know. We have no idea. Wherever he was, there was a roof above his head. And these men were surveying the situation and the congregation, their conversation might have went something like this. Abram, Jacob, Eliezer, I have an idea. Let's take Hosea to the back of the building, hoist him up on the roof, find the place on the roof that is directly above Jesus, tear a hole in the roof, lower Hosea down right in front of Jesus with ropes. The roof on this building isn't that thick. Four of us, we could do it in a snap. And Abraham, Abram says, well, what about the owner of the house? We can't just destroy his roof. And Jacob, having caught the vision, says, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. (laughs) And Eliezer, the logical one, says, what is more important, healing of our friend Hosea or this man's roof? Besides, we can fix the man's roof later. Okay, says Ithamar. Abraham, you get the ropes. Jacob, Eliezer, you find a ladder. Let's get our friend to Jesus so he can be healed. And you learn something from these men, don't you? These men loved their friend. And they were willing to do whatever they had to do to get their friend in front of Jesus. And these men are a great example to you and me of what it really means to love someone else. To have a persevering love that seeks to do what is best for another person. Love sacrifices self and self-interest to do what is best for others. And, you know, we don't even know what love is today. For the most part, people think love is when I feel good, period. But listen to me. I am sure the guy on the stretcher did not want to be hoisted up on the roof. I mean, it's scary enough to be up on the roof when you can hold on. 
And then to be let down through a hole in the roof. But you know what? His friends knew he needed to be in front of Jesus. And they probably said, listen, we're not going to hurt you. This is for your own good. We need to get you in front of Jesus. He can help you. He can heal you. Trust God. They wanted to do what was best for the man. Not what was most convenient for them. Love isn't motivated by feelings. Love isn't motivated by emotions. Love isn't motivated by what I want or what someone else wants or what's going to make them feel good or what's going to make me feel good or what's going to be the easiest thing for me and for them. Love is motivated by what God says is best for that other person, regardless of how it makes them feel and regardless of how it makes me feel. And we need to love each other in the church. So I ask you, what kind of friend are you? Do you seek what is best for your friends, even though you may have to hurt them a little bit in the process? Do you seek to love each other with a sacrificial love? Do you love people enough to reprove, rebuke, exhort, and admonish them? See, this is what love does. Love does what is best. And you know what happens when you start rebuking people. They get angry at you. Sometimes they turn on you. Sometimes they get defensive. Sometimes they accuse you. Sometimes you lose people's friendship trying to do what is best for them. But you know what? You still have to do it. Because you're supposed to love one another. So when is the last time you sacrificed for a friend, set aside your time, your energy, your resources to do what is best for them? Have you ever volunteered to help somebody and then it just turned out to be this huge nightmare? You know, you think you're volunteering for this much and you get this much. Do you follow through? I had a guy come to me one time saying, Jack, you know, I don't know very much about mechanics or anything, but I've got a I've got a small leak in my truck. Well, two days later, after staying up to the wee hours of the morning and pulling the engine on his truck and replacing the timing chain and the timing gears and oh man, we just about rebuilt the whole engine. We got the truck back in there. And you know what? I was not expecting that. I wanted to be snuggling my wife in bed. And you know, you need to look at your life and ask yourself, am I giving up for other people? You know, you can't serve every single person sacrificially, but you need to be serving some. Are you doing that? Are you doing that? Are you a friend to some? God wants you to be a true friend. And these men in this text are a great example of persevering to do what is best for another person. The second thing we learn from the text is who you must seek for forgiveness. We see this in verses 20 to 25. So the four friends of the paralyzed man tear a hole in the roof to lower this paralyzed man down with ropes in front of Jesus. And you can just imagine what is happening down below. I don't know if you have ever torn a hole in a roof, but I have. I'm telling you, it is messy. So imagine Jesus in this big covered area. People are listening to him and all of a sudden, you know, chunks of plaster 
mortar start raining down and hitting him and dust is falling down and pieces of thatch or whatever the roof is made out of there. It's coming down and it's raining and people are probably inside going, what are they doing? Fixing the roof this time of year. I mean, it's not even rainy season. And they have no idea. And they're going, Jesus, why don't you step out of the way? And these men are like, come on, keep going. It's almost big enough. And finally, they get the hole in the roof and they tell their friend, now, listen, we're going to have to send you in that a little bit of angle, but we've got you lashed on and we aren't going to drop you. And the guy's going, please don't. And they're lowering him down and they've each got a corner, a rope on the stretcher and they lower him down. And pretty soon people see this stretcher coming down, being lowered by these friends And all of a sudden, plop, right there in front of Jesus. And the selfish people in the crowd were probably thinking to themselves, hey, they're taking cuts. (laughs) And you know what? This is a good biblical example of taking cuts, isn't it? These guys took big time cuts. (laughs) And they watched as this man is lowered down right in front of Jesus. Look at verse 20. And the text says, seeing their faith. And I know Jesus is getting all this junk rained down on him. He's probably just smiling. Why? Because he's seeing their faith. And I'm telling you, God loves when we place our faith in him. These men knew that Jesus could heal the guy. They were so convinced that Jesus could heal their friend that they destroyed someone's roof to prove it. They hauled him up on the roof, ripped a hole in the roof to lower him down in front of the crowd. And the text says, seeing their faith, they believed with all their heart that Jesus could do it. And, you know, sometimes people say, well, I believe in something, but they don't do anything about it. And these men weren't saying, well, I know Jesus can heal the guy, you know, but, you know, there's so many people we could never get close. And these people were at it. They were doing something about it. This is the kind of faith that God God desires you and I to have. To have a faith that works on what it believes. That acts on what it believes. Turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. In the book of James, James tells us what it means to have true saving faith. So many people want to say, oh, yeah, I believe this, but they don't do anything. And so James addresses that because there were Christians in the church who were saying, oh, yes, I am a believer. And James says, oh, really? Look at verse 14 of James chapter two. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says. If someone says he has faith, but has no works, can that faith save him? The implied answer is no. Which when summarized means, if your faith does not work, you are not saved. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? The implied answer is, it is of no use. 
Verse 17, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. That is dead to save. Verse 18, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, which is impossible. And I will show you my faith by my works, which is the only way. Verse 19, you believe that God is one. You believe God exists. Oh, we appee. You do well. But the demons also believe you're no better than a demon. If you just have faith, it just gives mental assent to God's existence. Verse 20, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father just uh, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, And he was called the friend of God. Do you see that? Abraham believed God with a faith that worked. It's the only kind that saves you, that reckons God's righteousness to you through Christ. Verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. That is dead to save you. These men had a living faith. What about yours? What kind of faith do you have? You call yourself a Christian, don't read your Bible. Call yourself a Christian, rarely come to church. Call yourself a Christian, don't pray. Call yourself a Christian, don't give. Call yourself a Christian, don't serve in the ministry, don't kid yourself. You're not. That's what James is saying. If you have a dead faith, it cannot save you. True saving faith, the kind of faith that Abraham had, was a faith that caused him to do things. Because when God gets into your life after you're saved, it changes you and makes you into a new creature. Look at verse 20. Again, he, Jesus, said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Now, did you notice just what happened there? What happens is Jesus lowers the man down. The friends are all looking through a hole in the roof. And they're waiting for Jesus to heal their friend because they want him to be physically healed of his paralysis. And Jesus, knowing they're watching, knowing the crowd is watching, knowing the leaders are watching, he looks at the guy and he says in a loud enough voice for everyone to hear, your sins are forgiven. Now, when he said that, I can tell you what happened in the crowd. (gasps) These were Jews. These people knew God's word and they knew. That only God could forgive sins. Oh, we can forgive sins against one another, but only God can forgive the infinite offenses we have caused towards him all of our life. Only God can do that. And here Jesus, in front of all of these people, says purposely, not only for the benefit of the man... Not only because of the faith of the people, the four men with their heads sticking through the hole in the roof, but for all the crowd and all the leaders, he says, your sins are forgiven. So instead of physically healing the man, he spiritually heals him. 
In other words, the four friends wanted Jesus to do a physical healing, which would have been temporary. The man would have eventually died of something else. But instead, Jesus gives the man first something much greater. Eternal life. He saves the guy right on the spot. Friend, your sins are forgiven. Look at verse 21. The scribes and Pharisees began reasoning and began to reason saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You know, you go through the Old Testament and God, because he is the creator, he is the sovereign one. And it is against him and him only that we have really sin is the only one who can forgive sins. And you know what? Jesus knew that they knew this. And the people knew this. That's why he said what he did. Look at verse 22. But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Luke lets us know that Jesus knew what they were thinking in their mind, in their hearts. Mark makes it more clear when he says Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning this way in your hearts? The father gave Jesus in this instant instance, the permission to exercise some omniscience and he read their minds and he knew what was going on in their hearts. And you know what was going on in their hearts? I'll tell you, this is what was going on in their hearts. One, only God can forgive sins. Two, Jesus is just a man. Three, Jesus just said he could forgive sins. For therefore, Jesus has usurped the role of God and has blasphemed the Lord. And you know what? That syllogism is perfect without flaw. Except one of the premises was wrong. One of the premises was wrong. Therefore, their conclusion was wrong. And so, you know what Jesus does? Jesus goes after them and decides to fix their faulty premise so that they will come to the right conclusion. He is going to fix the faulty premise that he is just a man. And so look what he says in verse 23, which is easier to say your sins have been forgiven you or to say, get up and walk. Now what was going through their minds? Well, you know what was going through their minds. It was what was going through the whole, the crowd, the whole crowd's minds. Well, listen, anybody can say, you know, your sins are forgiven. But you know what? How can you prove that? You can't prove that until, you know, it's not apparent until judgment day. But the harder thing to do would be able to say to this paralyzed guy, be healed, you know, take up your pallet and walk. Now, that would be a divine display of power that would be irrefutable and it would prove beyond a shadow of a doubt Jesus's true identity. Both are the works of God. Only God can forgive and only God can say to the paralyzed man, get up and walk. One is unprovable. One is absolutely verifiable. And so Jesus is forcing them to fix the premise that they have that's wrong, that he's just a man. Look at verses 24 and 25. So Jesus continues, but so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. 
immediately he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Now, don't you wish you were there? Don't, don't you just wish you could have been there? I hope that when we get to heaven, you know, Jesus will set up some sort of three-dimensional celestial theater where we can, you know, watch all of these incredible events of history. I would love to have been there. I, it just would have been amazing to see this man lying on his back and Jesus saying, not only are your sins forgiven, but I'm going to prove that I can do it. Take up your pallet and walk. And instantaneously, the guy's healed and he's crying with joy and he stands up and he's looking at his legs and he's moving his arms and he realizes, man, he's healed and his sins are forgiven. And at this time, his friends above are crying and their tears are raining down through the hole in the roof because they've just seen a miracle and God's divine power and they've all been forced to the conclusion that Jesus is God. And you can just see the faces of the people in the crowd gasping and they're holding their faces and stepping back because God's power is on display right in front of them. Man, that must have been good. And what does the text teach you about Jesus? That he is all sovereign. That he is all powerful. That he is all knowing. That Jesus rewards faith. That Jesus gives us more than we deserve. And that Jesus is the one who can forgive you of your sins. And he can do it. When Jesus came to earth, his primary mission was to help people with their spiritual sickness called sin. Everyone has it. I have it. You have it. The babies in the nursery have it. Everybody you see driving around has this incurable case of wickedness. Sin that will damn them for all eternity. And there's only one person, one person who can heal you. And that's Jesus. Turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 verse 5 and 6. This is a text that's familiar to many of us. In Isaiah, there are several places where these different songs are called. Uh, They're the servant songs of Isaiah. And this is one of them, a portion of one of them, where the Messiah, the suffering servant, is described and his ministry to the people of, of God by taking their sin upon himself. Look at verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell on him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Some try to use this text to say that God wants all Christians to be physically healthy and healed because it says, well, by his scourging, we are healed. And all they can think of is physical. Listen, if that was true, Christians would never die. Oh, but they say, oh, well, the reasons Christians die is they don't have enough faith. Oh, that's a bunch of bunk. That's not what it's talking about. Isaiah is talking about Jesus bearing our sins to heal us of our eternally damning disease called sin. So that even when we die, we still live. 
because this life is not all there is. And we would be sorry people if we never died because we'd never go to heaven. But physical, earthly blessing is not what Jesus came to do. He did some miracles. He did some physical healings only as verification of his identity so people would get spiritual healing. The spiritual healing was the emphasis. He didn't come to fix, you know, scratched elbows and and to fix, you know, people's hurt knees and to fix them of their, you know, cancer and to heal their blindness. That was not the primary purpose of his ministry. Sure, he did a lot of that, but the purpose was so they would know who he was. He was the Messiah who could heal them of their sin. And when you look at the scriptures, you see very godly people, Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, and others suffering from physical ailments. And it, no, it wasn't because they didn't have faith. It's because the healing that Isaiah promises is not physical healing. It's healing from sin. It's physical healing after you die and are glorified. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, plagiarizes Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. And he just rewords those two verses. And this is how he writes them. He who he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Notice that we are saved in order to die to sin and live to righteousness. I know Brody preached on this while I was gone. And for by his wounds, you were healed for you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. That's what Jesus came to do. To save you from your sin, to preserve your soul, not to fix your decaying body so they never wear out. You know, we're all diseased. And I know there are a lot of people here who have physical diseases and injuries and things. You know, our bodies are wearing out. And it would be pretty foolish. It would be pretty foolish if I said, hey, you know what? You can get physically healed. You would all run for the opportunity. Most of you would pay good money to get healed from whatever you're broken down of. But it is foolish to have eternal healing waiting for you. Eternal life waiting for you. Jesus right now is willing to heal you right at this moment of your sin sickness, which will damn you for all eternity. He will save you. He will cleanse you. He will wash you. He will make you a new creature and put his spirit in you. If you're willing to repent and receive him as your Lord, your master, your King and follow him. You know, a lot of people want Jesus for fire insurance, but they don't want him telling them what to do. Those kind of people aren't saved. Jesus saves humble, repentant servants. Not those who stand in high-handed rebellion against him and go, well, I'll take all the good you can give to me and then I'll redefine you in my own image and make you what I want so I can have what I want. Those people are just deluded. And if you are one of them, get saved now. Get the cure now. Jesus died on the cross. He bore your sins. He was buried. He was resurrected so that he could offer you the free gift of eternal life. And you, like the paralytic laying on that mat, could have your sins forgiven right now if you cry out to God right now where you're sitting. He wants to wash you. He wants to make you clean. He'll adopt you. 
You need to part with your sin. You part with sin and Satan in his ways. Receive Christ to follow after him. He'll have you. But don't think you can serve this master and get saved by the other. It doesn't work that way. Today is the day of salvation. If you have never been healed of your sin sickness, do it now. Don't wait. Third and finally, verse 26. Finally, we come to the mother load of wisdom and reverence and obedience for all Christians. The one thing that fuels our desire to love and serve God. Jesus has just healed this man temporarily and eternally. Now Luke describes the response of the people. This is the crowd. We have Jesus. We have the four men. We have the paralytic. We have the crowd. And Luke says, and they were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear saying, we have seen remarkable things today. Well, no kidding. They had seen remarkable things. Luke says they were all struck with astonishment. The word in the Greek is ecstasis. The word we get ecstasy from strong's enhanced lexicon defines this word the state of someone who after witnessing an incredible event is thrown into a state of be blended fear and wonderment another lexicon says it means to set into terror to lose one's wits to be out of one's mind to be besides oneself in the modern day vernacular they were blown away because of what they had just seen they're all sitting there and Jesus says, what's eaters to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your pallet and walk. And they're all gone. Well, only God can do both of them. And you'd have to be God to do that. And since we can't verify if you can forgive somebody, let's see you heal this guy. He's in really bad shape. Okay, I will. They're all struck. God is in our midst right there. And they're terrorized. And Luke defines that because he says they were filled with fear. The Greek word is phobos, the word we get phobia from. They were terrorized. They had dread fall upon them. They were filled all the way to the top, not just with a little bit of fear, man. They were all the way full. They were scared. This incredible display of God's power right in front of their eyes also moved the people to glorify God, the text says. Doxadzo, the word we get doxology from, and they glorified God. This was a spontaneous response. I don't know if you've ever been there and someone's come to the Lord and all of a sudden, what do you feel like inside? It's like, oh, praise God. It just moves you, doesn't it? It's like, oh, man, that is so great because, you know, a miracle is happening right there in front of your eyes. And that's what happened here, but in a greater sense. And, you know, you may be sitting there and you may be thinking to yourself, but Jack, I wasn't there then. And, you know, it just doesn't move me like that. Well, there's a problem. There's a problem. You know, when you read a story, a historical narrative that talks about God and his awesome works, you need to stop. Don't just read the story and go, oh, yeah. You know, Moses raised up his rod and the Red Sea departed. Okay, next chapter. You need to stop. You need to ponder. You need to meditate. You need to imagine what it was like to be there. You need to imagine what it was like to be this paralyzed man. You need to be to imagine what it was like to be his friends. 
what it was like to rip a hole in that roof in front of all those people and to lower them down on ropes. You need to imagine what it was like to be one of the scribes and Pharisees doubting, critical in the crowd. You need to to imagine what it was like to be the crowd and what happened after the paralyzed man was healed. You need to see the face of Jesus. You need to meditate on this and put yourself in that position. You know why these stories are in the Bible? So you can experience them just like these people did. That's why we have God's word. God's not going to transport you back in time so you can go to all those events. He brings time here in the text of his word so that you can look at it and you can ponder it and you can just be blown away just like these people. And it creates fear in you. You see God's severity, his power, his justice. And you know what that does? It causes you to fear. And you know what the scriptures say? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of. Of what? Wisdom. And not only that, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of understanding. And it prolongs your day and it keeps you from evil and it blesses you and it is a treasure. And if you go through the Proverbs, you find out that the fear of the Lord is such a great thing. But some of you sit there and you think, I just have a problem fearing God. Well, that's because you need to stop and you need to ponder and meditate and think about his anger, his fury, his holiness, his justice, or the severity of his grace. I mean, you know what happened? These guys came for this little tiny thing and Jesus saved the man right in front of everybody and gave them what they wanted. Man, that is awesome. I want you to know if you were standing next to Moses when he parted the Red Sea, you would be scared. I want you to know if you were standing there at the rebellion of the sons of Korah when fire came out from the presence of the Lord and just devoured them and left nothing but charcoals on the ground, you would be scared. I want you to know if you were here and you were there in the front row watching this paralyzed man get healed by Jesus and Jesus forgiving his sins, you would be scared. And you need to be scared because it is the fuel for our worship, the fuel for our obedience The fuel which keeps us back when you think of sinning, you remember God. He is a severe God. He's gracious, but man, you don't want to mess with him. He's no one to trifle with. And so as you leave here today, I ask you this. Are you being a good friend to others? Are you sacrificing to do what is best for other people? Yes or no? Answer that before the Lord now. As you leave here today, have you run to Jesus to be healed of your sin sickness? Yes or no? If not, what are you waiting for? He's ready. He's already died. He's already made the provision. He's waiting for you. Will you turn from your sin and your wicked way and your unrighteous thoughts and follow him? That's what he's looking for. Finally, do you fear the Lord? If not, get into his word. Meditate on it. Think about it. And get a holy fear in your heart. And you will come away from God's word every time you do that, thinking to yourself, I have seen remarkable things today. That's what God's will is for every one of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the story. What an incredible display of Jesus's power. What an incredible savior he is that when we ask him for something temporary, he gives us something eternal. Lord, we thank you that he is so kind and so gracious and that while we were enemies, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, not because there was anything good in us, because he wanted to make us good. Father, we thank you for transforming grace. We thank you for your work in our lives. Help us to love you. Help us to worship you. 
Help us to fear you and honor you. Help us to spend time in your word, meditating on your great acts. And when we are just blown away, may we share our awe and reverence for you with other people that you might receive all the more praise. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.